Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, data scientist with about 10 years experience. And our guest today is Mr. Andrew Kramer. Hey, everybody. Welcome, Andrew. So Andrew is one of our deep expert practitioners in data science particularly. He has originally got a background in economics. He's lived in the Midwest and in Austin, Texas. And he's been working in data science for about five years now and in analytics for a good 10 years. And we're pleased to have him with us today, talk about his experience, his journey, and his views on the field. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Andrew, you have, you know, there's this interesting similarity in our two backgrounds where we did not have a straight path to this world of analytics and data. That's definitely true. So now going from a liberal arts college, getting an economics degree, flirting with being a musician, and then now you're a tenured data scientist. So Andrew, take me back to the time that you decided to move to Wisconsin and out of the world of finance and into the world of analytics. Yeah, sure. So because I studied economics and everybody that I knew studied either finance or accounting, I quickly realized that I had no idea how to be useful whatsoever in my first job. It was like a real struggle to figure out because I, I didn't know the language. I didn't know what a PL was. I didn't know. And I was picking that sort of stuff up, but I realized that in order to be valuable, I needed to be better at something than other people. And one of the things that kind of presented itself to me was Excel. And I just knew that I had to be the best at Excel. That was something that I could do. I could automate my job away. I could remove all the parts of it that I was bad at and had to think about. And as I was doing that and finding different roles, I kept on getting feedback from different bosses and stuff like, oh, you're great at thinking outside of the box. But sometimes we just need you to put your head down and focus on the specific work. And that was tough because I didn't really know a lot of those details. So what I found was that I was really, really enjoying all of the analytical side of of everything. I found that I really enjoyed working with data at a larger scale and finding insights. And I was a little bit less interested in, you know, the different financial levers that people were pulling. So... I found an opportunity in Wisconsin at a much smaller company that was willing to take a risk on me. They, I, the, the title is almost embarrassing to say it was data insights guru. I like politely asked that that wouldn't be my title, but the CEO in, insisted. So I was like, okay. So I kind of went from knowing some SQL and some larger database sort of query tools and a lot of Excel into a world in which I was the one building an analytics warehouse, picking up a lot of language that I didn't have. I had only queried, I hadn't built, automating all of their reports and analyses and and all of that. So that was really the crux of it was not only leaving the sort of job and the title that I had, but also leaving a larger company as well, where it was much more difficult to get on that analytics track that I was really interested in. Why do you think that company was prepared to take a risk on you to enter the field? What was it about you or the way you presented yourself that you know, made them say yes? So 
there were a couple of things and I, I, I'll, this will come up a couple of times. I like to think of myself as the luckiest person on the planet. You know, everybody's got a special something and I've been very fortunate to find people who are looking for the things that I am either, I have either just done or the things that I'm very interested in doing. So things that helped me, number one is coming from a large healthcare company, being in healthcare. It's, a, you know, if you don't have a healthcare background, then it's very tough to find a job in that space. Being excited, I think has been really beneficial to my career. So being able to articulate all of the reasons why I wanted to move away from my existing career has been really helpful. Then number three, being able to communicate the things that I've done in order to make those changes has been help was really helpful as well. For instance, on my LinkedIn, I had done a Code Academy web, you know, online course, and I'd put it on my LinkedIn. I'd only done about a week of it before realizing that I didn't really like JavaScript, but the hiring manager at the startup saw that and really resonated with that because he was a big teach yourself how to do a JavaScript guy. And that is kind of what got on my, on the, his radar. So in short, going from big to small, being really enthusiastic, showing that you're already putting the investment in so they don't have to, and also being extremely lucky are, I would say the three things that enabled them to want to invest in me. Also, I was a lot cheaper than somebody who knew what they were doing. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that your experience with an economics degree was similar to mine. When you go into the world of finance, you might as well, with just plain econ, have, uh, oh yeah, I have psychology or philosophy. It, it's such a non-practical starting point. Right. And to be clear, I am a huge defender and champion of the liberal arts. And my, both my parents went to the same school that I did. And a lot of people will say there's zero value in liberal arts. And I would say off the bat, that's absolutely true. You know, it's like, you know, prices go up, people buy less. You know, that that's a good thing to know, but that's not going to get you a job. But the skills that you learn from the liberal arts, critical thinking, willingness to learn things outside of your your discipline, I would say are things that have really benefited me over over time. Also a focus on like communication of different ideas as well. Big liberal arts guy over. It's a little bit of a, a bait on that last one because I pretty much am in the same mindset. So when you think about that as a data scientist, mm -hmm. how do you think that mindset has actually benefited, you know, your your career? Absolutely. So a lot being a data scientist is really interesting because it is such a new discipline. It's only in the last couple of years, academic programs have had the title data science, et cetera. And that has been both a benefit and a problem, I feel, because there is and always has been in data science a massive focus on the technical aspects, which makes sense because if you don't know how to write Python, you are going to struggle as a data scientist. There's no way around that. But I think that the most effective data scientists, the people who are out in the field solving problems for businesses, maybe not the people doing research on the newest, sexiest stuff, but people who are trying to solve problems, they need to have that toolkit of being able to communicate with their partners, figure out what the actual problem is, rather than just focusing on tools and technology and speaking Greek to people who don't understand what a lambda is. So now... <clears throat> 
So now you've, you're at your company in Wisconsin, learning, mm -hmm. building data warehouses, even yep. though maybe not fully qualified to do so, but having lots of fun. So what, what is the next step? What happens after you've been there? Okay. So a couple of different things happen. Number one, I get way better at SQL. I was okay at SQL and I became really good at SQL. We invested in a, a product that most people now know pretty commonly. It's a looker. I wasn't I got our company to adopt Looker. It helped me automate all of the reports for everybody. Now Looker is owned by Google and it's a massive company. I went to their first convention and that was super, super fun. So being in kind of that position of what not only am I managing the data, but also serving it in, you know, easy ways was really kind of helpful in terms of how I think about data on a larger scale. But then also when I'd first started and Looker was not part of the conversation yet, and I was trying to automate everybody's reports, I was going to be relying on my old faithful, Excel. However, being at a startup, I had moved from you know, the Windows ecosystem to a Mac. And Excel on Mac, you may or may not know, is not the same program whatsoever. So I was having all sorts of these weird technical issues in which the Mac Excel could not handle the formulas that I was putting in and I was unable to do my job. So I had to find a new way of being able to do robust analysis quickly. Doing a little bit of research and talking to some of my friends who were much smarter than me, a couple had recommended the R programming language. And I would say that this, I thought that learning SQL as a non-technical person was impressive. That was a completely different lift than learning R. And I realized that Technical people on this call are probably laughing at me a little bit because R is generally considered to be one of the easier languages. I know, Lee, you learned Fortran as like your second back, language. Back in the no, first language back in the day. Well, yeah, I mean, it went English, Fortran, French, I believe, right? But yeah, so learning how to do that, following a lot of tutorials online, figuring out how do I do Excel thing in R really helped me map the skills that I had before onto this new skill set. And I always recommend leveraging that sort of thing anytime anybody's learning anything. You know, it's good to learn. Uh, people in Python will talk about doing things Pythonically and how that is intrinsically better. But if you are moving from something like Java and moving to Python or moving from R and moving to Python, figure out how to get it working the way that you can understand it and then figure out how to do it in the quote-unquote optimal way that only, you know, five neckbeards care about is, is, is how I would recommend approaching learning these things outside of the box. So in learning R, I also got exposed to the world of statistics. R is a statistical programming language, and the community is so fun. There's the, the ladies R community. Our ladies. Our ladies, which is extremely active on Twitter. The CEO or leader of some sort, Hadley Wickham of our studio is extremely prolific. The, the community is just so welcoming and it just really opened my eyes to what are people doing with this programming language. And a lot of it is statistics and a lot of it is machine learning. So then I just started ripping through courses online and trying to teach myself as much as possible. So then what drives that next step? So, you know, you, you have now standing at the beginning of mm -hmm. what you may or may not have realized was a new journey. <laughs> so the world of R, it's, it's a gateway, yep. it's a gateway language. And so now you're getting into a whole broad new, new arena. And, yep. and, but did you know that at the time? 
you know, when you're you're still at the startup in yep. in Wisconsin. So what what happens next? Yeah. So I'd started going to like meetups and stuff, and realizing that people do this stuff casually, and I started hearing whispers of Hadoop and Cloudera, and I was like, oh, I am actually interested in this stuff in this this more technical space rather than just you know solving the business problem you know how how do i use the newer technology to solve these problems that i'm interested in so the the real reason that i started to go deeper is because number 1 the company i was at was not growing i think i was employee number 17 and then we got up to 30 and then by the time i left i think i was you know there were like 14 people left so there was that my particular team was not growing so I wasn't able to learn from other people. The developers were great, but they didn't speak exactly the language that I wanted to learn. So kind of at this point, I got a little bored, honestly, and didn't want to do the same thing over and over again. And I was really interested in this data science stuff, and I did not have a professional outlet for it. So I decided to make the jump and do one of these data science boot camps. The one that I did was called Galvanize. I identified that as, you know, best value and, you know, best education for your buck. They had offices in New York and San Francisco and Seattle and Chicago. And, you know, through a combination of wanting to get out of the Midwest and not wanting to only eat ramen, I decided to go to the Austin office. And that really, I think, completely changed my career. I knew it was going to help me. I thought I was going to get a more, a similar job I had before with, you know, a little bit you know, maybe at a larger company, but I never thought that I was going to be able to actually become a data scientist because data scientists, as we all must have PhDs. So in doing that, I, I, I came down to Texas, packed everything up in my, in my car and drove down and did the program, which is three months, eight hours a day, you know, learning Python, learning linear algebra, statistics and all that. I have to say, I laugh a little bit when you compare Austin as being semi-affordable compared to those other cities on the list, but it, it probably was a little bit back when you first came down. It was, it was and still is way more <laughs> affordable. Also, I had a friend whose parents I was able to stay with as well, so that would made it very attractive to pay into something and not have to pay rent for a couple of months. So again, luckiest person in the world, the fact that you know I was able to stay somewhere rent-free as I made this investment, made it even easier to continue to do it. And I realize that not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah, but I, I think it's a good thing to be this straightforward on how your journey happened. It happens a lot in business books and other things. It's like, hey, this is how I did it. But right. then the secrets behind it aren't you know, laid out for everyone to see. And so you might make some significant blunders if you tried to copy the journey as told versus the journey that actually happened. Absolutely. I remember when I was in Chicago and I was a young person and I was like really into listening to startup podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I remember driving in my car and I was 23 years old and hating this hour and a half commute I had every day in Chicago. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm 23 years old and I haven't even started my first company. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a complete failure. And it, you know, it's just kind of, and you're listening to all these people where it's just like, oh yeah, I sold my first company that I started at 17 you know, I sold it at 20 for, you know, $5 million. And I was just like, what am I doing wrong? And I was just like, like, no, like th those people are different from me and that's okay. And 
in fact, I'm actually probably happier than, you know, having to monetize everything. So it's all about, you know, making sure it's great to hear other people's stories and then like, okay, if I do ABC, it's going to happen. But I think that not enough people realize how much luck there is. And a lot of it is also position as well. Well, and also we frequently hear the stories of statistical outliers yes. and not the average, right? Mm -hmm. the, the average CEO of a, of a founding company is 44, 45. Right? Exactly. You all, know, not all people, 17. <laughs> all people create their own mythologies, right? You know, yes. we, we have a messy journey, but that doesn't sell books. That doesn't sell, you know, the dream, Yeah. right? So if you create the nice mythology around it, then that's a way that you can sanitize and make it also, people also, I've noticed, want it often to be about them, aren't I great? And yep. what I like about your story is that you're saying, you know, yes, there's things that you've done, but there's also been luck. Yes. But also you've been able to leverage that return on luck. Yep. Like some people do say, you know, you make your own luck as well. And, you know, I've had a little bit of that, right? Learning the right things, you know, things that I've saw in the news and, you know, data sciences. Number one sexiest career, 2013 Forbes magazine, you know, like, you know, so I kind of knew that that was a thing that sounded interesting. So how can I, how can I match that? But you, you never know what's actually going to happen. I thought that I was going to be in, you know, finance until I eventually died. That's kind of the, <laughs> that was kind of the assumption. So you, you don't really know how it's going to pan out. You're such a wonderful storyteller there, Andrew. All right. So we, we, we took the philosophical mm -hmm. sidebar here real quick, yep. but now, now you are, we're, we're hit pause. We're yep. in, and on, on the TV screen, we see Andrew. Yep. He has come to, he's got his little backpack on. He's here in Austin yep. and doing data science. So what happens after Galvanize? Right. So Galvanize ha is not only a data science learning bootcamp, but it is also got a WeWork-esque collaborative work environment as well that a lot of, you know, either tech professionals or startups will rent space in order to be part of a smaller tech community. And one of the companies that was in there is a company called Cerebri, was a data science company. And I'd been able to develop a couple of relationships with folks at Cerebri. Also, I was going to say I developed a relationship with Lee as well. There's another huge stroke of luck that I was in the same class as Lee. Lee was kind of the unofficial second professor of the course. I would not understand, you know, the Bayes theorem without him. And I was able to develop these relationships with the folks at Cerebri. And I knew a couple of the people had already gotten offers at Cerebri. Lee had gotten an offer at Cerebri. And then another one of our good friends, Michael Engeling, had gotten a job at Cerebri as well. And I knew that they were doing data science work and they were doing data science work at a data science company. And that was extremely attractive to me because one of my, the things that I did learn about doing analytics in different places is I find that I much, much, much prefer to be the product than somebody who is providing insights about the product. Because if you are the product, the company is going to listen to you and put a lot of investment in you. If you were talking about the product, then you are getting a lot of feedback from the product itself and the product people, and you are not the focus. You are just, everything you do is in support of the product. You are not the focus. So I was really excited to work somewhere where I was going to be part of the solution. And Cerebri was great. Like they hired a ton of really young, smart people. I was kind of in through the gate before they stopped hiring people without PhDs for better or for worse. And 
but really it gave me the opportunity to directly apply all of the things I had learned from Galvanize. And I got to work with people who worked on this stuff at a much deeper level. I got to work with customers. I got to work in interesting development environments and really solve some tough problems. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing for folks in hearing your story to take away, right? Is that you you took great advantage of different situations, right? The the one back at the small healthcare startup in mm-hmm. Madison. It's like you're the smartest person in the room. And you're able to do a lot, but then that also has its limits, right? It has right. both its flexibility, its freedoms, but then its limits. Absolutely. And then, but now you come down here and you may be the tallest person in the room, but you're not the smartest. Oh, not, I'm very rarely the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I can tell you that much. Not even the smartest person in this room. <laughs> but not, but now yeah. you are, you know, so what is that like for, you know, your career now that you are working on a team? As you said, there's two big changes. You are the product. Mm-hmm. And then so to walk people what you mean through that, because there's not everybody in, coming into data science understands what that means. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that is, you know, just that value of having a lot of other people to learn from. Sure. So I'll, I'll try to clarify the being the product. So if you are a so the at, when i was in madison the product that we had was walking people through all the education for getting a hip replacement or knee replacement so the product was the educational tool it was a you know it was a ruby product and there was an unbelievable amount of focus on what is in the product what is getting added to the product how can we help the developers get stuff into the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They get to drive the boat. They get to do the most exciting things. And they are where the discussion of what is happening with the company is going. If you are in analytics, you are talking about how are people using the product? Where are people failing to use the product? And begging people to save the data about the product in a different way so that you can actually answer some questions. And unless that directly impacts the product, which it probably doesn't because you're just kind of assisting, you are not going to be the focus. The focus is going to be the developers. It's the same thing with like the customer success people. Well, the customers really are saying that this would be great. That can come in and maybe it makes it into the product or maybe, oh man, it would be great if we could implement the product to our customers in an easier way than this really manual web GUI thing. That would be great, but... They're not the product. They're the people implementing the product. So they are probably not going to get first dibs on how the product evolves. So in being in that product situation, you get a lot more focus and investment and things typically move a little bit faster. You feel a lot less sidelined as compared to some of these more support roles, which are mandatory. Does that make, does that clarify a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's you know, in, in using maybe some stage terms, it's the difference between being the scribe who's writing the story and the person who is the story. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, being at, a, at the data science company, we were selling machine learning models. And if the models didn't work, then the product didn't work. Sure, there was a GUI, but they were all in support of the machine learning models that we were building. So we got a lot of investment, we got a lot of time, and we got a lot of guidance. So your second question, though, was working about people who are, you know, working with other smart people. And this was great because part of the, I don't even want to say failure, but one of the difficulties of data science education, statistics education, is it is all so abstracted. It is also, as I've talked about before, it's all math. It's all Greek. Figuring out how to 
apply these different concepts. You've got all these tools in your tool belt, but it's kind of like having a screwdriver and not knowing what a screwdriver should be applied to. Statistics is the study of phenomena in data. I'm sure that Lee could give me a better definition <laughs> of that, but it, you know, finding patterns in data, finding you know patterns in distributions, and when you learn statistics, you don't get a big data set and somebody says, describe this in some interesting way. Help me provide business value. They say, this is what the mean is. This is what the standard de deviation is. This is, you know, this type of distribution. This is that type of distribution. So the, the thing about this learning about uh, the thing about statistics is that the way that it is taught does not map the way that it is used in business. So figuring out how to apply it is really depends on situation to situation. So being able to work with people like Lee and a lot of our other coworkers, you know, people like, uh, you know, Satish, Mike Engling and David Curry and all, all of these, all these great, really smart folks is that I was able to understand how and when to apply all of these things that I had learned. And also more importantly, when not to trust things or when not to apply things. Data science is all about nuance. You can teach anybody how to build a model based off of you know, copy and paste this, get a model. Five lines of code, man. Exactly. That's all it takes. <laughs> it's, it's all it takes. But in those five lines of code, are you able to identify that what you just built is completely un unhelpful? You know, there's a lot of nuance there. You know, how do you make something, you know, what four characters do you have to add in order to make that model 10% more useful? That's kind of really where I was able to learn that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's... And it's an interesting aspect because the that, you know, which tool, when, where, mm -hmm. and and also which tools should I never use for particular things, yep. you know, really is the beginning of some of that responsibility piece. Like uh, Lee and I talked about seeing several people in network posting about, oh, look how easy, you know, a lot of these cognitive services and other abstracted things are. I have 97% accuracy rate in identifying lung cancer. Right. I don't think that's doing what you think it is doing, right? Exactly. And these are all tools, and that might be a great baseline, but the to pretend that you can just throw data into a machine learning model and think that you have solved the problem, I think does the discipline a great disservice. There are some people in, in economics, sometimes people take the holy data approach they say i have no assumptions i have no i have no models or anything like that i have no theories i just look at the data and i and i find truth and one of the things that my professors taught me is that without a theoretical framework around whatever the problem that you are working on you are likely just infusing bias into whatever problem you are trying to solve so even though you may think that you are just looking at the data really you're just looking for what you want and it doesn't have any sort of theoretical underpinnings sure there's like a balance because you want to be able to find the things that you didn't expect etc 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 but when you're working on these different problems say breast cancer it's really important to know theories and how breast cancer research happens in the biology and all of that sort of thing. So also in, in this process, it's working with smart people that are not data scientists as well, figuring out how people approach the problems themselves. What is that tribal knowledge that already exists? And how do you encode that into your models as well? 
Well, and then also making sure that you have asked all the right questions, because even back to that example of no theories, no framework, mm -hmm. but then your first bias is, I have all the data I need potentially for the questions that I might have. Exactly. So, so now, Andrew, you have done your tour of duty, shall we say, mm -hmm. at Cerebri, yep. and you have then looked further on. So what, what was that next step? Why did you decide to do something yep. different? So the sort of work that we were doing at Cerebri was really fun and exciting, but I was finding that being the product for a singular product meant that the number of different projects I got to work on and the amount of time on each product was kind of getting a little bit slow for me. I find that building the first model or the first couple iterations of a model is really fun. I don't really like optimizing a model to get it from 96% to 97%. That's just not as fun for me and it takes a long time. So I had also, you know, Lee at this point had left for different companies and then he had actually come and work for you at Catapult Systems. And Catapult Systems is a consulting company. So I was really excited about the prospect of being able to work on a number of different problems in a number of different spaces and being able to start that transition from being a wholly technical person who's kind of blocked off by a number of layers of project managers and all that sort of thing into somebody who got to define the problems, solve the problems, and architect the problems as well. So now you, you really moved from, you know, Cerebri, you were pretty much an integral part of the product mm -hmm. to then consulting where you inherently are the product. Exactly. So how did that feel? What was that like? That was really exciting. It was a little bit of a shift in terms of, you know, taking some of my own medicine, right? Like, oh, well, you know, you can't just, you can't just type on the keyboard. Like you can't just figure out how to hit the thing. You have to truly, nobody's going to tell you exactly what to do. And the people that are might not be the expert. So you need to be able to give the feedback to the client, truly understand where they're coming from, and then make the suggestion. Because even after the sale of a consulting job, the you need to continue to sell what your solution is going to look like, monitor expectations so that you can have a su successful project. So the scope of the work increased, and I thought that was super fun. One of your characteristics that I admire about you and I think helps you a lot is your ability to listen to what people are saying and kind of sift through all that. How would you describe the role of listening in projects that you're doing? So... People rarely know what the problem is, but they feel that there's a problem. So in listening, you're not just waiting for somebody to tell you exactly what the problem is. They are going to tell you what they perceive the problem to be. But by listening and then also making sure to ask those deeper questions and figure out where things are, are truly coming from, that I think is really the, an integral part of listening. Listening is not just being quiet. It is giving people a platform to understand what is truly the issue. So, you know, and the, the reason for that is, is a lot of people are able to just kind of like sit in silence and come to a solution, and I am absolutely not able to do that. The way that I work through problems is talking through it with somebody next to a whiteboard. I think that I'm not alone in it, right? So being that whiteboard for somebody, letting somebody paint the whole picture 
and then helping them identify where the crux of some issues are. I think that's part of the, the, the key part of listening is, you know, making sure to be that person who can push the person that they're listening to to get to what their the, the true problem is. And I, th I think that to underline something is a key point for folks that are looking at data science in their careers is the difference in, well, both aspects of questioning are important, but it's to the degree that you have to be the one driving the questions mm -hmm. versus being part of the questions. So when you're in consulting, you absolutely have to drive the questions. You know, when you're in a product company, you should know that those questions should be asked, mm -hmm. but you can sometimes take a second seat to the person that will go ask the questions, but, but always be aware that those questions should be asked. Absolutely. <clears throat> so now, you know, this last year has been a little bit of a whirlwind career-wise. So talk us through those last little bits. And then one thing I, I think everybody will appreciate after hearing those last two steps in your current career is then the most interesting project that you've worked on. Sure. So working with you two at Catapult was great. And then all of a sudden, all three of us found ourselves working at Talon, another similar consulting company. And <clears throat> Talon's really exciting because they really wanted to invest on a company-wide level in data science and machine learning. So it just proved to be an additional opportunity for me to work on these sorts of projects. And also, one of the things that I've been wanting to do in my career, you know, just always kind of keeping a pulse on what have I done, what do I want to do, is move towards moving towards like a an, more of an architect level position and also helping people develop and learn in their careers as well. And Talon really was opening up some opportunities in that way. So the the work has been kind of similar, but I've been, you know, more FaceTime with, you know, on the pre-sales side, which has been really quite ex exciting. And then we got acquired by Ernst & Young, which has also been extremely fun. I haven't worked for a company that's larger than most cities before. So the transition has been really exciting. But then also with that comes the scale of new projects as well. So, you know, at, at other companies, you know, we were really hoping a client would spend a couple hundred thousand dollars with us in, in order to do it, data science, OC, MVP, whatever. Whereas... Here we spend a couple hundred thousand on a pursuit. Exactly. So it's been really exciting to see the changes in that way. In terms of what my favorite project is, I really, this was one from, from Catapult, was working with Chesterfield County. And what they wanted to do was try to predict where, wanted to know where to build schools, parks, and libraries, because these are expensive investments and they were, Chesterfield really cares about serving their community in the best way possible. And what my focus was on this project was really figuring out what is the machine learning model that actually helps them with this sort of problem. Well, we don't have all the data of who and when people use parks. Okay, that's kind of interesting. How do you predict when you don't have the data? The All the library data for very good reason, is extremely privatized so that we can't see the history. All right, well, that's kind of interesting. So figuring out a solution that the group was happy with was a really fun journey. And what the, the core of the model was is figuring out how do you predict population growth in different areas throughout the county using both the census and then also housing data as well. Where are more and bigger houses coming from? 
Where are sales happening more or less frequently? Where and how many people are going to schools? What is the average travel time for people to go to these schools? Finding what data would support our problem was a really, really interesting and satisfying experience. And doing something that had never been done before. I mean, I certainly hadn't done it before. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's Chesterfield won an innovation award for that because no baseline to pull from. It was so much fun. And it was really satisfying being able to talk to some academics who focused on the census and a couple people from UVA who focus on, you know, sort of population growth and that sort of thing that they had also consulted on and having some them be like, ooh, that is really interesting. I wish I had access to that data. Made it, made it definitely feel pretty good. So Andrew, as we wrap up, I've got a couple of questions for you. Mm-hmm. So what do you feel people misunderstand the most about using data and using data for strategy? What do people misunderstand about data and using data for strategy? I think that using data is very, it's a very easy thing to say, throw your data at it without truly understanding the data. And I think a lot of people assume once we get into the cloud, we'll be able to make a solution. Once we plug in Power BI, we're going to be able to have a solution. And what you need is a specific problem that you either can't solve right now or need help or it is too difficult to solve in order to guide how you are doing stuff with your data. If you just move your data over and you start creating data models connecting different things, you are going to fall apart. Because if you don't follow the money, if you don't follow how you can make actionable decisions, then whatever lift and shift that you're doing is probably not going to have a lot of value. Start with the problem and then take that to its end point. From a machine learning perspective, a lot of people say, well, we just want to use ML. You don't just want to use ML. Well, I mean, you do because it's fun and cool and popular and all mysterious, but You don't just want to use ML. You want to fix a problem using machine learning and figuring out what those problems are that actually require machine learning is incredibly important. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I I think the, the key thing that we've heard as far as having a successful career, you know, are being curious, asking questions and taking a lot, putting a lot of investment in your own self learning. Anything else you'd add to that? Also develop uh, good and close business relationships. I think one of my pet peeves is when companies call, you know, the team a family, but because, you know, they're not your family, your family is your family, but they can be your friends. And I think that even just like the people in this room, developing and cultivating good friendships that grow, that are outside of just the business, I think is really key in order to finding new opportunities and having people think about you and you thinking about them. People want to invest in people that they're friends with. So that's also another part of, you know, of kind of investing in yourself and investing in your relationships. Well, Andrew, thank you for your story today. Thank you for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, Reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. 
Thanks again for listening.